Um, we've been teaching consistently through the book of Luke for almost two and a half years now. Uh, we will finish next Easter. Um, so right on the three-year mark is when we'll finish going through the book of Luke. So Luke 19, 11 through 27 is where we're going to land this morning. Now, if you are 30 or below, raise your hand. Okay. If you are 31 or above, raise your hand. So this is kind of this gap here that we have um, where the millennials and even kind of the next generation that come on and, and there's this growing tension and it's just fun to kind of poke fun at each other. Uh, but here's what, what always gets accused of. Raise your hand real quick if you're 30 and below. I used to could raise my hand there. I can't anymore. Um, that was a great time in my life two years ago. Um, but, but here's what you guys get accused of. Um, you're so entitled, you're so needy, you just want what people have, you're not going to work for it, blah, 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 blah. But here's what I love about your generation, and I'm going to say my generation because technically I am a millennial. If you didn't know that, I am a millennial. But here's what I love. It is really hard to dupe you guys. Because of raising, being raised with the internet, like you just are constantly aware. You don't trust hardly anyone. Um, you see marketing and telemarketing and things on the internet all the time. And so your radar of being duped is just not there. It is, in, it is not there. How about I just use the same word twice? Um, you can't be fooled in a lot of times. But if you're 31 and above, bless you, <laughs> you fall for everything. Uh, I had a family member who's going to remain unnamed because uh, this story, but she ran into my uncle and said, hey, how's your friend doing? And my uncle's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. She's like, well, like I sent him like $6,000 because you asked me to on Facebook. Is he doing okay? I, I would love to support more, but, but that's all I have. Have you all seen that Facebook scam going around where you get two friend requests from the same person? Totally got her. So I want to make the call to this distant relative and go, hey, there's a great church in Nalanaga that like, if you want to support with all this extra cash you got laying around, uh, but I'm afraid if she, I call her, she'd go, oh yeah, I already support Concord Nalanaga, and then we would have no money. So um, just kidding. I love those guys. That was not a dupe at them at all. Uh, so this older generation, we might be a little naive on the things of technology. The younger generation though, you guys, you, we cannot fool you. Now, let me just kind of connect the dots with what we're going to see in scripture that if we, these millennials, these guys that are so smart, if we can't be fooled, do we think that we can actually fool God? If we think we're smart enough that we can't be duped, we see what's going on behind the curtain, we don't trust any sales pitch because we know that they're just trying to make money, do we think that if we're that smart, we can actually fool God? Because what we're going to see this morning is a lot of us maybe are trying to. We need to have a wake-up moment. There's, there's no way on earth that we can fool a sovereign God. So let's pick it up, Luke 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 11. I'm going to read all the way through it, and we're going to have fun this morning. There's so much, I was telling my wife last night, there's so much history and theology and just funness in this that I'm, I'm excited to preach this one. I hope you're excited to hear, or whatever you do. Yes, I said funness, stop. Luke 19, pick it up, verse 11. And they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they were supposed to, sorry, this, I gotta take a break for a second. Do y'all see how much this thing is moving? <laughs> so, Ricky, will you help me? I'm gonna read from my Bible. Will you tighten that nut on the bottom? Because that's gonna drive me crazy. Can we restart? Is that okay? All right. Anyone familiar with ADD? All right. 
If you're not, watch me. Luke 19, verse 11. I'm going to start all over again. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Verse 12, he said to them, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to, the, to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that they might know that they had gained by doing business. Verse 16. The first came to him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to them, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank at my coming? I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who is not, even what he has, will be taken away. Verse 27, but as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we dive into your word this morning, God, would you speak truth to us? Would this not be my opinion, Father, but would this be your truth reigning out? God, we desperately want to know you. We want to know your character. We want to know your nature. We want to know everything about you. So, Father, I don't, I don't know the different um, ways that we've walked into this gym this morning, but, but, Father, would you speak clearly to us? It's your name that we pray. Amen. So, as I, as I mentioned before, as I was kind of geeking out over this, there's so much to cover. So I'm going to read a little bit and talk a little bit to kind of get the, the main point of this parable pulled out, and then we'll dissect it a little bit, and then I'll pray and we'll be out of here. But let's pick it up in verse 11 to make sure we understand the, the point of this parable. As they heard these things, they being the disciples, the crowds, all that was around, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus is a master at taking what the crowds and the people already know and then using that to convey deep spiritual truth. And so if you remember last week, there's the whole Zacchaeus climbing the little tree and, and the main point, Luke 19.10, probably the epitome of what the Gospel of Luke is about, says that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. But the whole point of this, or, or one of the points of this story, was that Zacchaeus had to climb up into a tree to see Jesus. So the main idea we walked away with last week was that the crowd, the ones that were nearest to Jesus, were actually the ones that were keeping people far away from Jesus. 
And so we ask ourselves, is that us? Are we here? Are we I'm doing this religion? Are we doing this Christianity thing? But the way that we act, the way that we live, the way that we believe about God is actually hindering people from coming to Jesus, not helping people come to Jesus. So he stops and addresses this entire crowd through this parable, but he uses, again, he uses this massive story um, to tell this illustration because here's what, here's kind of the theology here. Do y'all know what eschatology is? Doesn't matter. The, The end times, here's what the Jews thought at this time, that when Jesus got into Jerusalem, he was gonna overthrow Rome, that he was their savior, he was the Messiah. In that moment, he was gonna overthrow Rome, he was gonna overthrow the government, and that he was gonna rule and reign in that place. So of course all these crowds were following Jesus. They didn't care about Zacchaeus. They didn't care about any of all the other friends. All they wanted to be is super close to Jesus so that when they got to Jerusalem, when as they thought Jesus overthrew the government, overthrew Rome, that they were going to be one of the first inside crews with Jesus. That's what they thought. That's what they were walking into. So Jesus is saying, listen, here's this huge crowd because you think this is about to take place. Let me tell you what's actually going to take place. And this crowd is then going to disperse after. Verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave ten minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, that story, the, the introduction to the story means nothing to us. But for all that are hearing this, they know this story uh, to the T. Because anyone ever heard of Herod the Great? Any Bible Sunday school kids saw the little felt board, Herod the Great? We know Herod. Um, he was the ruler of this region, Judea um, and Jerusalem, for Rome. So the way that it worked in those days, Rome ruled everything. But they knew that if they just came in and immediately took over power, that people were going to revolt and it was going to look really ugly. So they would go in and pick a king in these different regions that were already good standing in the community. And so the Rome would kind of cast out, would let these guys lead, even though Rome was the ultimate leader. So Herod got into this leadership role. He was considered the king of this area because he claimed to be Jewish. There's a lot of um, mysticism of whether that's true or not, but he claimed to be Jewish. I can lead the Jewish people. Just let me be king here. So um, uh, Rome said, sure, let's make it happen. You are the ruler. So Herod the Great led from 41 BC to 4 BC. When he died, he split up his region into the, or split up the kingdom into three different regions, and he let one of his sons lead each one of them. And this is where we meet Archelaus. Can someone please name your firstborn Archelaus? Please. I know the branch doesn't have money, but we will try to cover your cost of delivery if you just promise that you'll name your kid Archelaus. Any takers? I'm, no, I'm not having another child. We have four, we're done. Archelaus, he's just, I love that name. So when Herod the Great died, Archelaus and his two brothers had to go to Rome and had to petition the king, hey, my dad left me this, but you have to sign off on this for me so that I can go back to rule. But everyone hated Archelaus, they hated Herod. And so there was a delegation of people that went after Archelaus and said, no, don't let this guy Reign. So the story that Jesus is telling, this parable that he's opening up, everyone knew this was an actual historical event that took place. So they're able to say, I understand this. I have the framework for this. What is Jesus getting out? This is the understanding. This is the normative of what I know. And Jesus is going to take what they know and turn it into a deep life-changing truth for them. 
And so this is where the parable really begins. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minuses, which is a good chunk of change. He said, listen, engage in business. Basically, make money. Take this and however you want to make money. Now, I have to kind of put a caveat here, too, because how we understand slaves is not biblically what a slave uh, was. The the Greek word slave is doulos. Um, That doesn't mean slave in the same sense as far as like abused and neglected and forgotten about. Um, That could be just a trustworthy friend or trustworthy employee that he's given high responsibility to. So these were friends of this nobleman, this guy. And in um, in the parable, if we haven't picked up on it, this nobleman is Jesus. These are his friends. He said, I have to go away before I can come back. So straight out the gate, they should go, whoa, wait a second. I, I know that Archelaus had to go and get his kingship and come back. Is Jesus telling me he's going somewhere and then he's coming back to rule? Yes, he's told you that plainly. He's told you three or four times, I have to die. When we get to Jerusalem, I will die. But they still missed all this. They thought that he was going to Jerusalem to rule and to reign. And he said, while I'm gone, you have a job to do. Take these minas given to the ten servants and make money with them. Do business with them. Verse 15. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, so it worked. When this nobleman came back, he received the kingdom. He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now, now listen, as we're going through, and I wish I could, but just for time, I'm not going to pretty this up. This is us in this story. That that we will be held accountable when Christ comes back for what we've done with what he's first given us. And I've made this point 10 million times. Let me make it 10 million in one. What you have is not yours. I mean, can we just have a frank, honest conversation about this? All the way down, and I'm not talking about what you own, what you possess. I'm talking about your personality, your DNA, your skill sets. What you currently have is not your own. I mean, think about it. I played baseball growing up. There's no way in the world I could play professional league baseball. I just don't have the genetics. I don't have the genes. I could practice my entire life, and there's no way that I could do that. The personality that you have, God has given you to that for a reason. The knowledge that you have, the skill sets. Do you all notice how we have our own kind of little um, areas of specialty that, that just naturally growing up we own and we possess? That's not an accident. That God has entrusted you, though, with you, entrusted you with those gifts for a reason. So we're not talking about these minors. We're talking about our life, that when he comes back, what have we done with the personality? What have we done with the abilities, the skills that he has given us? Because nothing is our own. The faster we can understand that. I mean, did you choose to be born where you were born? Where's your hand if you're in college? Okay. Do you think that that's an accident, that you were born in America and able to go to a university in America? And we just let our mind kind of wrestle around that. Yes, I just said wrestle. We're in the South. Mass, where's Mass at? Wrestle is a word for you to know. Sorry. <laughs> Digress. But if we just wrestle with this for a while, th- th- there's no coincidence here. That the Lord has put us in a certain time, 2018, here with the skill sets that we have, with the abilities that we have for a purpose. What do we do with that purpose? 
Because we know based on this parable that the king is coming back. We know based on Revelation that Jesus is coming back and there will come a time where he says, I've given you this DNA, I've given you this skill set, I let you live during this certain time. What did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the skill sets that you have? Verse 16. The first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you should have authority over ten cities. And the second came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. And here, here's what I love. Again, I, I wish we could camp out here. Maybe we'll do a, a, a whole series about heaven one of these days. But there's two big takeaways we have to add us. One had ten minas. One had five but did the nobleman, did the king celebrate both of those guys? Yeah. He said, yeah, you're going to be over 10 cities. You're going to be over five. The one that had five did not get scorned because we could go into Romans. We could go into Pauline theology, but what they did was probably the best that they could. So as we compare ourselves to one another, how often we do this, we say, well, I'm not him, so I might as well not try. I can't do that, so why am I trying? I can't get to that level of Christianity, so I'm just going to stop. No, no, that's, that's the wrong question. What did God give you, and what are you doing with it? Don't worry about what's the God gave, or what God gave to your neighbor on your left or to your right. What did God give you, and what are you doing with it? And the beauty of heaven is this. I think, again, I'm going to try to cram this into 30 seconds. Um, we, we grew up singing Amazing Grace, which isn't our national anthem. It's, it's kind of in the South. But we grew up singing Amazing Grace. And when we've been there 10,000 years, signing as a shun, we'll sing forever. So what does heaven look like? Are we just going to sit there and sing forever? And, but what we understand scripturally is that God is going to refine this by fire, that everything is going to be made new, and we're going to go back to pre-sin in the garden. So these guys are going to be trusting 10 cities and five cities. We're going to be entrusted over something in eternity. We're going to work and not toil. We're going to continue in our life without sin. That heaven is going to look a lot like what we do now, but totally made new. With no sin, with no hurt, with no pain, with no shame. So what we do here is, well, it's not going to matter when I get to heaven. I'm just going to sing, right? Yeah, we're going to sing. We're going to celebrate and we're going to praise because we're going to be in communion with God the Father constantly. We're not going to need the Son because we're going to have Jesus Christ that's going to illuminate the world for us. But what we do here echoes in eternity. We have to wrap our minds around this. Verse 20. Here's where things get a little awkward. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you do not deposit and you reap what you do not sow. So things get a little weird here. He gets a little snippy. But here's what I want you guys to focus on because we're going to circle back to. Look at the accusations that's taking place. That you were a severe man. That you were a thief. You were a thief. You reap what you do not sow. Verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. One of the things that I've learned just over the years with counseling is if someone's being emotional, you relate to them emotionally. If someone's being logical, you relate to them with logic. You don't combine logic and emotion. Husbands, look at me. Boyfriends, look at me. You do not combine logic with emotion. If you just master that, you're going to be a phenomenal husband. I think some of you are not catching what I'm saying. 
you'll, you'll figure it out. Call me in a couple years when you get in a knockout drag out. Well, I told her what to do. It didn't work. Yeah, you moron. Um, <laughs> so this, this nobleman, this now king, fights logic with logic. He's saying, listen, I'm going to use your own words against you. If you say that I am a severe man, that I am a thief, Verse 23, why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? He said, no, you're a liar. You don't believe the words that you're saying because if you did, then at a minimum you would have at least put the money in the bank so there'd be some kind of interest there. But you did nothing. I entrusted you with this and you did nothing. You were a wicked servant. So not only did you do nothing, but then when I came back, you lied to my face and you tried to make me the bad guy, says the nobleman. And so I just want to unpack for the rest of this morning, what is it that this wicked servant, what was his motivation? What was he doing? Why did he react this way? Maybe he thought that the king wasn't coming back. I'm good. I don't have to worry about this. The king, he's not going to get the kingdom. The delegates are going to win over. I don't have to worry. I'm, I'm going to be fine. He's just going to give it to me. But understanding that who he was addressing, the crowd, I think that gives us a huge clue to why he was acting the way he was. But one theologian puts it this way. The nobleman points out that this man does not live by his theology. He confesses something about his Lord, but does not live in light of that confession. So, so here's the scary part. Maybe you don't realize that, that now because of you sitting in this room, that because of you opening your Bible, you are now accountable for what you know. That you can't go back and unlearn something. That because this servant, this wicked servant, took the minus from the nobleman, he is now responsible for that. And as God has given us, as we've received things, we are now responsible for that. Whatever we know about God, we are responsible for that before God. We have to understand this. That we cannot get to eternity. We cannot get to the point of judgment and go, God, I just didn't know. I didn't realize this when we've grown up in church and we've studied the Bible. We can't play this ignorance card anymore. That if we have this theology be about God, then we must walk out this theology. Verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, remember there's 10 servants, so these are the remaining servants. Take the minor from him and give it to the one who has 10 minus. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minus. I'll tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but the one who has not even more, even what he has will be taken away. It's a simple principle here. Can God trust us with what he's given us? And if he can, then do we not think that he's going to give us more? And if he can't trust us, do you not think that he will be taken away? Verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now listen, if this is the parable, if this is Jesus saying, here's what's about to take place. I've got to go away to receive my kingship, and when I come back, you're going to be held accountable for what you've done, just like this parable suggests then we are all in this story. If Jesus is a nobleman, that gives us three options. We're either the faithful that took the minus and turned it to five or 10, or either the false, the false servant, the wicked servant, 
or we're the foes. We're the ones that do not want Jesus Christ to reign, that do not believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to not believe and save by grace through faith. We're one of those three. There's no other ways for us to fit into this parable. We're either the faithful, we're the false, or we're the foes. Now, I want to spend the rest because if you're a foe, you know you're a foe. If you hate God and everything about him, you know that. I don't have to convince you of that. I'd love to talk to you and discuss that. But if you know you're on that extreme, then you know. But the question that's probably resting there, okay, well, am I faithful or am I, am I false? Or maybe am, am I fake? Am I this wicked servant here? Wh- which one am I? So let me address maybe one, if you're, if you're a thinking guy or girl, let me address something real fast. Because raise your hand if you've heard the theology, once saved, always saved. Okay, so when you're studying this, when you're reading about this, and there's a lot of commentators and theologians that would differ on both. So let me kind of get this out of the way so that we can understand this better. Was this wicked servant, is this a teaching of, well, if you don't do what God asks you to do, God's going to take your salvation away from you? Does this salvation represent by the minus? And if you don't do what he's asked you to do, he's going to remove the minus away. Now, remember who he's talking to, this crowd that never really had affection for Jesus to begin with. They just thought he was going to Jerusalem to rule, and he wanted to rule. They wanted something from Jesus, but they had no desire for a relationship. So here's what I would say, and I'm just going to read a John MacArthur quote because I think he says it best. Remember the accusations that the wicked servant said. No true believer would act like this. This wicked servant is not a true believer. What other explanation do you need? No true believer calls the Lord a liar and a thief and an exploiter. No true believer indicates to indicts the Lord. No true believer declares his lack of love, lack of trust, and lack of interest in the things that the Lord is concerned with. No true believer accuses the Lord of lacking justice and fairness and using people for illegitimate selfish gain. He has an unfaithful heart. He has no love for the king. He has no interest in the king. He has no desire to honor the king at all. And the king knows it. So, so think about this, guys, how I opened. If we who are who we are, I'll let you give your own adjectives to who you think you are, but as limited, selfish, sinful human beings, if we can smell when people have false motives, do we not think the God of the universe can? So, so here's where we are. I just want to kind of help us to understand, maybe give us some questions to think about. Are we this false, fake, wicked servant? Because I don't know that he realized he was. And I know us being in the South and the Bible, but I don't know that most of us realize that we are. I think that's the most scary thing, teaching through this and studying this and, and discussing this with other people. I, I just think we're blind to it. I don't think that this wicked servant actively knew that he was an enemy of God as much as I don't think the most of us actively know that we're an enemy of God or the most of the crowd that was following God know that they're active enemies of God. I just don't think we realize because we have such a religious culture that I've got to be fine. I've got to be doing okay. I'm doing what this guy's doing, so, so I've got to be good. So here's just a couple things that maybe we can look at, the characteristics of the false, the fake, the wicked servant. If there's no desire for obedience, there has been no salvation. 
So this wicked servant had zero desire to do anything with this minus for the king. If there's no desire for obedience, then there has never been salvation in your life. That you're walking the faults, you're walking the fake life after the wicked servant. There's been no real salvation for you. You are not the faithful now listen, I'm not saying that you have to walk in, in submission and obedience every single moment of every single day or else you're going to hell. Please hear me not say that. Obedience is a struggle, it is a wrestle, and there's many times that we walk in straight rebellion from God. But is there a desire there? Let me maybe use a different word. Is there a delight? Do we delight in obedience to God? Even if we run from it, even if we wrestle with him for a season, is there a delight when we know that we're being obedient to God? Do we take joy, do we take pleasure in doing what he's asked us to do? Because if he's God of everything, he knows how we are designed, he knows the way we must work, and what he's asked us to do, the responsibilities that he's given us, will ultimately bring us the most joy. So is there a desire, is there a delight in obedience to God? Hosea 6.6 says it this way, and Matthew requotes it. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So is there a joyful delight and desire for the obedience of Jesus Christ, or is it I've just got to do this to get it out of the way? I know I need to read my Bible. Let me just read it so I can be done so that I can maybe get a little higher. I know I need a church because my parents are going to drive me crazy if I don't, so let me just get there and, and do this. I know I need to do this and this and this. If I don't, then I'm going to feel guilty, so let me get this out of the way so I can enjoy my life. Is there any delight in the obedience of the things of God? And if there's not, then we have to wrestle with this idea. Am I being faithful or am I being false? Because I think that, that a lot of us want to play a, a middle ground here. Star Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. It is always so that gracious and faithful men obtains more grace and more means of usefulness. Why unfaithful man sinks lower and lower and grows worse and worse. We must either make progress or else we lose what we've attained. There's no such thing as standing still in religion. There's no such thing as standing still in religion. So if you look at the trajectory of your last five years, are you turning towards delight, delightful obedience to Christ, or are you turning away from that? And what then does that mean about your salvation? The second thing we learn from this crowd, from this parable, from the wicked servant, is that proximity, title, and responsibility does not equal salvation. That proximity, that title, that responsibility is not the same as salvation. The crowd that followed Jesus were so close to him. But that doesn't mean that they've been saved. That doesn't mean that they're putting their faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ. That means they just want something from him. That this wicked servant was still a servant. He had the title, the responsibility of being a servant, but he wasn't a true follower. He just had the title that the Pharisees throughout Jesus' day had all of this. I mean, they were the who's who's of religion. But let's flip over to Matthew 23 and see what Jesus says about these guys. So if you're about to flip real quick to Matthew 23. 
that we cannot confuse proximity, title, and responsibility to salvation. And listen, this is a hard one for us that have grown in the church. This is a hard one specifically for the ones that have, the individuals in here that have just good leadership. Oh, you're a good leader, therefore let's lead in the church. Will you come help lead this? Will you lead this area? Will you be on this leadership team? It doesn't mean that you're necessarily a believer. That just means God has gifted you the gift of leadership. So, so here's what Matthew 23, we're going to pick it up in verse 23 says. Now these are the guys that had the title, they had the responsibility, but they were not believers. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected and Sorry, you neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgences. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside may be clean. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs and out, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear, appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So church, church you've, you've got to hear what the Pharisees are dealing with, what the wicked servant is dealing with, and what the crowd is dealing with. Your attendance, your title, your nearness to things that are religious do not make you a Christian. And I know, in the, again, in the South, it's all with what you know, it's the relationship that you go to. I'm a Christian because I've been to church. I'm a Christian because I led this. I'm a Christian because I'm in leadership here. But that does not mean you are a believer. Why are you doing those things is a better question. And the last thing that we learn from this parable about the wicked servant, do you actually know the king or do you just want his stuff? Did the wicked servant actually have a relationship with this king or did he just think that if I'm around him that I can get more stuff? Did the crowd actually want a relationship with Jesus or when they got to Jerusalem, they just wanted his things? That if he's really going to rule and reign in Jerusalem, if he's going to overthrow the entire government, then I just want his stuff. I want to be close to Jesus so that I can get something for it. And so maybe you're here because your life is down and out and you just want Jesus to fix it. Maybe you think that this is what it looks like to earn things. I mean, how many would you say that you just have a great work ethic in general? That you just like to work hard? None of you. Fantastic. Illustration flopped. Thank you for that, church. I love you. Thank you for helping me out in that moment. Jeez Louise. She's got a good work ethic. She serves some fantastic steak at Longhorn, which is probably where she's going right now. I'm sorry. Have a good day. So anyways, what we're talking about here is this clear depiction of um, we can follow Jesus just to gain something. We say, listen, I've worked hard, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Therefore, Jesus owes me. But we understand what James 2.18 says, right? 
We, I mean, we understand that someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, but I will show you my faith by my works. That there is a possibility here. Scripture has shown us that you can work your entire life, but you have no faith behind that work. That you are a wicked servant, that you are a false follower, that you are fake. Just in the nature that we've grown up. Work hard, do what you're told, but you don't have to have faith for that. Tithe because that's going to make the church happy, but you don't have to have faith for that. Read your Bible. You don't have, go join a missional community. Be a part of a DNA, but you don't have to have faith to do any of that. You're just doing it because you feel like you have to. But there's a possibility here. There's that chasm here of work and faith that you can work without having faith. But James says, watch my works. That will show you my faith. The only reason I work is because of my faith in Jesus Christ first. Him and him alone. Can you, if you just close your eyes, which you don't have to because that'd be weird, I'd be looking at a bunch of closed eyes. Can you picture your life without following Christ? I mean, can you just dream for a second, what would it look like if I did not have to follow Christ? What would it look like if Christ has not actually saved me? And if your life wouldn't look drastically different, we need, we need to talk. If your life would look the exact same, if you don't think you would fall into sin, if you don't think you would run this way, listen, I, I would try to make the most money in the world and I would neglect my family in the process. And I would do whatever I had to do to do, make that money. Backward deals, short deals, ripping people off, what does it matter? I would do all of that. And so I don't think it's funny that God has chosen me for ministry because I don't make any money. So would your life look drastically different if you weren't following after Christ? Now here's one of the best explanations. What, what is a case study? What does this really look like? So if you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew 26. Is it possible to walk and follow Christ and still be this fake false servant? I know, Gabe, I know that you read a parable, but that's just a parable. That's just an example. That this stuff doesn't actually happen. That this doesn't really happen, does it? Matthew 26, we're going to pick it up in verse 20. Matthew 26, verse 20. This is at the Last Supper, hours before Jesus gets betrayed and arrested, and beaten, and murdered. Matthew 26, verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. As they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you that have walked with me for three years. One of you that have seen me heal people from the dead. One of you that has heard my teachings, that have watched me perform miracle after miracle after miracle, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, when they said, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, or say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Verse 23, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? 
Is it I, Rabbi? Now, now listen, here's been a guy that have followed Jesus, that has slept in the same room as Jesus, that has shared meals with Jesus, that have heard Jesus talk, that seen Jesus do miracle after miracle, have witnessed everything. And at the end of it, he says, is it I, teacher? When everyone around, when all the 12, when the 120, when the followers of Christ were calling him Lord, it is Judas that said, is it I, teacher? Is it I, rabbi? Is it I, good guy? So how do you know if you're the false or the fake? My biggest question would be, what do you call him? What do you call the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Because Judas, who was about to betray him, called him a teacher, a good guy, a man. What do you call him? And not what are you supposed to call him, but when you pray, when you consider, what is the name that you tack on to Jesus Christ? And that will tell you what you truly believe about him. What do you call him? Because it is possible, church. We see it in the parable, we see it in the crowds, and we see it in one of the 12. That we could follow after Jesus for years and not actually be faithful. That we can be a false follower. And how can you tell? What do you call him? Do you call him a liar, a thief, evil? Do you call him father, the savior, redeemer? Do you call him rabbi, teacher, good guy? Or, or maybe here's the most common. Do you call him nothing? If you're not here, if you're not a Bible study, there's nothing, there's no communication, there's no intimacy, there's no relationship. What do you call the Father? Nothing. So church, I, I love you enough to be honest. And I love scripture enough to teach it and not skip over these hard things. But we have to examine. I mean, there's a reason that scripture says work out salvation with fear and trembling. That if I'm going to preach the totality of Scripture, the full gospel, I have to let you know that there's a category of false, fake believers in our midst. Is it you? Is there a desire for obedience? Is there a desire to follow the Father? Do we delight in those things or do we just want to stuff? Do we just feel obligated when we pray to Him? What do we call Him? Are we that wicked servant? So, so we end the gatherings the same. We stop, we take communion, we remember what Christ has done for us. But, but Corinthians is clear that the process of this is a long process, that we should examine our hearts. And if we're not following him first, if we're not repentant of our sin, then we should not partake in communion. So I would really ask you to wrestle with this before you take communion. There'll be elders at both table if you need to grab someone and pray. But examine your heart. What do you call him? Are you a faithful or are you a fake? Let's pray. Now, Father, these are hard things to swallow and to wrestle with. But thank you for you and your good grace that you included this in your scripture so that we can examine our hearts. 
Father, we know that you're calling us, that you desire a relationship with us, that that you have done what it takes for us to be saved when you went to that cross. So God, I, I pray for us in this room. God, would you speak to us clearly in this moment as we wrestle over this question of what do we call you? Do we call you rabbi? Do we call you a teacher, a good guy? Or do we call you our savior, our king, the one that redeemed me? What is it? Father, I know that this isn't some scare tactic, that you didn't include this in your word. You didn't preach this parable to the crowds to try to terrify them, Father, but out of your love and your grace and your mercy for them, you gave them a warning. You spoke honestly with them because you desired for that crowd to be made new. In the parable, you desired for that servant to be faithful, to have that relationship with you. And you desire for us in this room to be faithful and have that relationship with you. So, Father, as we examine our hearts this morning, God, would you speak clearly to us? Are we faithful? Are we fault? Or are we a foe? So, church, let's just take a few moments just to examine our hearts, just to ponder and to listen. And as you've examined, once you've examined your heart, communion will be open. There will be elders present to pray with you. Father, I just pray that you would speak now.